You know, sometimes it feels like we can often just break down our lives into just like a series of decisions that we make. We always are making decisions, and these decisions are affecting us and affecting others. And I just want to start out, and this may take a little bit of time, but I'd like to start out just talking about a series of decisions that have happened. One is sort of historical, and one is more about someone's personal story on the decisions they made in their life. The first is really decisions that we made in the uh, that uh, we made in this country, and made in lots of other countries, lots of other time periods during the world. It's not like we were the only country to have ever done it, but we brought Africans to the New World with, or we uh, wasn't we, I wasn't there particularly, but Christopher Columbus brought them in 1492. He was on the Juan Las Canaries, was a crewman on the Columbus flagship, the Santa Maria. Not much long after, the first enslavement occurred in what would later become the United States. In 1508, there was, a, there was a, the establishment of a settlement near the present-day San Juan, which I believe is uh, uh, yeah, present-day San Juan, and began enslaving the indigenous people. But when they started running out of indigenous people because they were dying, they started importing African-Americans from Puerto Rico. The first African slaves in the United States were arrived in what would become South Carolina in 1526. You see decisions here. It's not like American slavery was like this one decision where someone sat down and said, should we have this or should we not? There was this decision with Christopher Columbus, and then there was the next decision by somebody else, and then there was sort of the next decision and the next decision. And as American history went on, there was this new and incredibly lucrative market, market that became available because of one incredible invention, and that incredible invention was the cotton gin. The cotton gin was an amazing invention. It suddenly made cotton become possible. So you had slavery in the United States from going all the way back, and there were slaves that worked in the cotton fields, but they also worked in, they also worked in the rice paddies, the tobacco fields, sugar plantations. But the cotton gin is what really took, took, made things take off. Prior to the cotton gin, it only took one enslaved worker. It took one enslaved worker 10 hours, 10 hours to pick out the seeds of one pound of cotton. And then with the cat, cotton gin, suddenly we're able to move on that. So suddenly com farmers, you know what they needed? They needed three different things. But the first thing they needed was land. Because you can only grow cotton, or at least you could back then, on a piece of land for about three years. After about three years, that ground no longer was suitable for growing cotton anymore, and you needed to be able to move on. So they needed to have a lot and a lot of land. And so what the U.S. military did to try to help out these farmers, they said, we'll just send the military on down to what now is Alabama, Florida, and Georgia. And they went and they took the land from the Native Americans. And then they sold that land to American farmers for incredibly low prices. So suddenly America has the invention of the cotton gin. We're able to get so much more cotton this way. And also we have this invention, or not the invention, but the inquiring of an incredible amount of land. 
incredible amount of land and incredibly cheap. I mean, almost, I mean, it's almost like it was free. But you have the cotton gin, you have a lot of land, but you know what you still need a lot of? You still need a lot of workers, and you still need a lot of labor. And of course, they went and hired people and paid them a fair wage, right? They provided them health insurance and everything that they needed. And of course not. What actually happened was that in 1790, the U.S. went from about 700,000 slaves, and by 1850, there was about 3 million. 700,000 to 3 million in about 60 years, and cotton is what drove it. These plantations ended up becoming giant, incredibly intricate corporations. Look at all the decisions that had to be made. The U.S. government had to decide to go get the land from the Indians. The farmers had to decide to go on it. And they decided they needed to have labor. So then they decided the way that they were going to increase that labor was by importing more slaves. And as they made these decisions, they made these incredibly huge plantations. They were incredibly intricate corporations and they were solely focused on producing more cotton. There were chains of command, middle managers, dra data tracking techniques, quota systems, manuals, and credentials. They were all developed to keep the production of cotton humming. And of course, part of the glue that kept it all together was violence. If a slave failed to meet their quota, so I don't know if you've ever worked maybe a call center Seems like it's a popular thing to do when you, at some point in your life, you worked at a call center. Usually you have a quota of some kind that you have to fulfill. And if you don't make that quota, I don't know what happens. I never worked at a call center, but eventually you get fired, I suppose, if you don't make your quota. Well, what happened when a slave did not make their quota? They were beaten. They were sometimes beaten so badly that they would pass out from the pain and wake up vomiting. Pregnant women. So if you were pregnant women, it was a little bit harder to whip them. So they would dig a little hole so she could lay flat on the ground. So when they whipped her, they could get the whip to land more squarely. As the global demand for cotton went up and down, so did the amount of beatings. When demand for cotton would go up in England, the amount of beatings in the U.S. would increase. These, these plantations were so incredibly effective that by the time that the Civil War began, a slave was picking 400% more cotton than that same slave would have been 60 years earlier they eked out a 400% increase in labor. Cotton was a wonderful material, and the world just couldn't get enough. You know, the farmers now had the land, they had the workforce, but you know, you know they had the cotton gin, but the third thing that they really need when you want to have a big company, what do you need when you have a big company? You want to expand that big company. What do you need? You need capital. You need money. You got to be able to Buy the land, which wasn't too cheap, but you got to buy the slaves and buy the cotton gins and buy everything that you need to get it going. So you need to have, so you don't have all this money at the beginning. What do you do? You borrow the money. 
So big companies are always borrowing money. So there's like, so it's, it's famous, like Uber has never made a profit. How do you say, how's Uber never made a profit? They just borrow more money. They get more investors. They borrow more money and they get more investors. They cr- increase how much market share they have. And they say, well, one day we'll make money. That's how it usually often works. And so these farmers needed money. They needed more upfront cash to expand production. And you know what, normally what a farmer would do is they'd say, well, I'm going to take a loan out on my land. But the banks made this decision. They said, you know, your land's not really worth very much now, is it? You know, you had this land sort of donated to you by the American Indians. Um, donated, wink, wink, right? So we're not really going to give you any money for these loans. But you know what? If you put your slaves up as capital, then we will give you the money. And suddenly the global markets of the world were involved in this operation. They would bundle these loans. They would sell them as bonds to the rest of the world the majority of the capital driving slavery was, guess where from? The London money market. The very country that had abolished the slave trade 40 years earlier was now bankrolling it. They were providing the money to make it all happen. Decisions, decisions, decisions. As an investor, you could claim you were against slavery and have a good public face, but you could still make money off of it. At the height of the slavery in the United States, if you sold every single slave and got the money for it, it was worth more money than if you owned all the railroads and all the factories in the entire country and sold them. All the factories and all the railroads in the United States were worth less than all the slaves in the United States. And then guess what happened? They kept making more and more cotton, more and more cotton, more and more cotton. Then they made too much cotton. They created what sometimes we refer to as a bubble. Prices began to fall And then we had something we called sometimes now the panic of 1837. And suddenly, plantation owners could no longer pay their loans. So you say, price of cotton's got down. The value of slaves has gone down. So even the land, whatever it was worth, has gone down. You can't even sell your slaves or your land anymore to be able to pay off your debt. You're totally underwater. You're toast. So you know what you'd think might happen? You know what makes sense to me that would happen right now? Slavery would have to end, or at least be incredibly reduced. But you know what happened actually? Nothing. Slavery was too big to fail. If you've ever heard that expression before. Decisions, decisions, decisions. You know, I had a, a friend of ours recently told us, you know, every time my boyfriend gets pulled over, I, get, I just really freak out. Well, why? Well, he's black. 
the decisions that started with Christopher Columbus 600 years ago or whatever still affect us today. Still affect us today. Decisions, many of us, none of us, we weren't a part of those decisions really. But guess what? We're still living with them. We're still having fights over them and arguments over them. The country's still dividing over them. All from decisions that were made long ago. Decisions have an incredible impact. I'll tell you another story. This is more personal. Story. I, I just want to make sure you understand. I'm not saying everyone in this particular gentleman's situation is like this. This is just his situation. So I'm not speaking for everyone. But his name's James Shupp, I think his name, if I'm saying it right. He's a retired from the U.S. Army. He's a decorated sergeant, first class, and he was there for 18 years. But prior to going into the military, when he grew up, he was sexually abused by an uncle, badly, all of his growing up life. His parents apparently severely beat him. He said, by the time I'd gone growing up, by the time I'd seen what I'd seen in the military, I wasn't really exactly sure how I could believe that I was even alive anymore. I'd been so much trauma. When I was in the military, I watched so much pornography all the time that I was through. The woman I was married to refused to become the ideal female that I'd seen on these videos and pictures that I'd looked at. So in my head, I decided that I should become a female. What he would describe himself as is autogenophilia. There's a lot of debate on over autogenophilia, but this is what he thinks he has. So this is his description. He says, it was my motivation to become a woman, so I played into gender stereotypes and that is how I implemented it, meaning, what does a woman look like? Well, she has to have long hair. She has to have large breasts. She has to have all these things that we might stereotype a woman that she has to do. And he says, I fed into those. I believe that wearing a long wig, dresses, heels, and makeup would make me a woman. So we started becoming injected with hormone and hormone therapy and so on and so forth. The VA was the medical field that he was a part of, and it helped him do this. He went on and on, and I'm shortening the story greatly, but eventually he just said, what am I doing here? I, I, this is not really even working for me. When he takes all the medicine, it makes him sick and whatnot. So he says this, I know. I am just going to become non-binary was his solution. So James Shupp is the first legally recognized non-binary person in American history. So his fascination with becoming a woman had come to an end to a degree, so he decided, and the doctors agreed, to allow him to become non-binary instead. In 2016, he convinced an Oregon judge to declare his sex non-binary, neither male or female. And at that time, he became an 
a greatly popular figure within the LGBT community, but it wasn't until he came out against sterilization and mutilation of gender-confused children and transgender military service members, and then suddenly he was ostracized by the LGBT community, and now he became a man without a home. He was non-binary. The people that were pro-sex changes were against him now. Of course, the people that were against Sex changes were against him now. He said, I went from a media darling to an outcast. But he says, ironically enough, it doesn't make me a conservative even more than the hormones made me a woman. I'm otherwise still very much a bleeding heart liberal, which leaves me in somewhat of an awkward space. In January 2019, Unable to advance the fraud for another single day, I reclaimed my male birth sex. The weight of the lie on my conscience was heavier than the value of the fame I'd gained and participated in. He said, I played in my heart pushing this grand illusion. And then he goes on to say, but I'm not the victim here. My wife and children, his daughter, are the real victims his wife had stayed with him through the entire process. He made a lot of decisions. You know, well, interesting, some of those first decisions weren't even his. Did he decide what his uncle was going to do? He did not get to decide that that was going to happen to him. When he went into the military, did he know what was going to await him or did he know the effect that that was going to have on him? No. And of course, once you get there, you have a duty to do. You do what you're told. It's not a choice. But then after that, he made many choices, many choices, many choices. And the choices ended up becoming a landmark judge's decision. Choices, choices, choices. Choices that will probably ring in American history for long after any of us are here. Today we are going to look at just a short passage in Acts chapter 6. I'm a, we're going to look at a choice that was made that I think is a choice that has a lasting impact on today as well. We start in verse 1. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, so they're continuing to grow, and we had Ananias and Sapphira in the previous chapter. We've moved on from that. Things, the, the church is growing a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrew because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. I don't, I'm not going to go into a ton of details in all this stuff this morning. I'll try not to bunny trail too much. I'm essentially going to say here in verse 1, it seems like the Hellenists, the Greeks, thought their widows were being neglected. So the church was taking care of the widows. And later in 1 Timothy, we actually see some at least one qualification, maybe there are more, more qualifications, of what it means to be a true widow. There's kind of a list in Timothy. Timothy. I hope I'm right about that. And here, the Hellenists say, okay, we have true widows as well, the Greeks, but we're not being taken care of. There's problems. Seems to be that the problem is happening here, that there's more people to take care of than they know what to do with. So the 12 summon the full number of disciples and say, 
It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They start looking at this issue, this problem going on, and they probably realize that this is just a problem that's going to end up being a lot of problems. And the more people that grow in the church, right, increasing in number there in verse 1, as the church grew and grew and grew, what was going to be happening? This could take all of their time. This might be all that they do. And it's not that doing it is wrong. They were doing it at the beginning. It's not that they never should have been doing it. It's not that they were above it. It's not that they seem with some less than them or someone not as important to do it. It's just we all can't do everything. And they said we cannot get ourselves wrapped up in this. And so notice the apostles here, they evaluate the problem. They see what's going on. And then they suggest a solution. They say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint this day. Now, for those of you in my Wednesday night class, this is like a really important passage, right? So in Baptist theology, if you will, or Baptist history, Baptists have always kind of argued for something where the congregation should have final authority and vote. So in a Catholic situation, that's how it goes, right? It's top down and... Uh, Episcopal situation is top-down, and Presbyterians a little bit different. They do vote, but they, they still kind of create boards, and then it's more top-down after they vote. And even Lutheran, it's more top-down, and Methodist is more top-down. So, I mean, there's a lot of bottom-up places like evangelical free and non-denominational churches, but Baptists kind of were the core denomination in history that were sort of this bottom-up system where you kind of had voting. And this is one of the passages that Baptists often look at in order to kind of show that, that the uh, Baptists are correct in that we should vote. And I'm going to say this. I don't want to get into every detail. There's like a lot of different passages we could look at. We've looked at many of them Wednesday nights. But I would say about this, the apostles really have a lot of authority in this particular situation. Now, we don't have apostles today, so I'm not trying to say this is pastoral authority or, or board authority or anything like that. I'm not trying to compare. I'm, I'm just saying that who's decided there was a problem? Well, the apostles decided that you know, we have this problem. Who came up with the solution? Well, the apostles came up with the solution. They say, pick among you seven men of good report, full of wisdom and spirit, whom we will appoint to this duty. So it really kind of seems to me like the apostles have quite a bit of control in the situation. I'm not saying it doesn't mean we shouldn't vote. I'm just saying that this is how I see this passage. If you want a full explanation on the voting thing and all that, you can, for all you ladies out there, you can dress up like a guy and uh, join us, I guess. I don't know. Uh, then you can give all the nerdy stuff. That was a terrible joke. Um, <laughs> so they have this problem. They're going to solve it. They need to pick some people. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the test ministry of the word. So they're going to ministry of the word. They're going to have, appoint these people that are going to go ahead and work on this serving aspect. Another thing that's kind of important is we think that these are probably the first examples of deacons in the Bible. It doesn't, you know, we haven't heard, seen the word deacons. It doesn't say the word deacon here, so I can't say for sure. But Baptists also have always seen two offices in the church, two biblical offices. Those are pastor slash elder slash overseer slash bishop. Okay, so pastor, well, that's the one office. And there's a list of qualifications for pastors in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
if you would like a really in-depth look at some of the arguments for some of the views for one of the phrases in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, I know of a really good dissertation you could read about it. It's just super, super fascinating. So you have the list of qualifications for the pastor. That's one office. And you have a list of qualifications for the deacons. That's, that's two offices. So the, the, the Baptists have often said the only two biblical offices, the offices that the Bible requires, are, are pastors and deacons. We think these are the first ones. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. So this is kind of part of the debate. It pleased the whole gathering. So let's say the whole gathering didn't like it that much. Would they have still done it? I think they would have. I, I, I tend to think that the apostles here are kind of in charge, but maybe you could argue something like, well, the whole congregation's in charge here ultimately, not the apostles. I'll let you decide. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Iconor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So they choose this group of men. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So these men were chosen, they laid their hands on them, and now suddenly there's a different group of people that are in charge of taking care of the widows and making this distribution. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. As we think about this idea of decisions, this decision, and it's just a, such a, it's a small piece in the big picture. I know it's, it's not like this is the only decision that mattered, but this decision for the apostles to say, we're going to focus on the word, but it's really important that we keep doing all this service as well. So we're going to make sure we come up with a system to appoint people to be able to take care of it so it still gets done, I think has lasting impact on us today. There's a book, Kennedy and Newcomb. They wrote this book, and inside of it, part of it, they detailed the rise of charity in the name of Jesus over the centuries. It's a pretty stark contrast to the amount of charity prior to Jesus. The historians record that prior to Jesus, the ancient world left little trace of any organized charitable effort. An important aspect of Jesus' ministry was his emphasis on helping the neediest and the lowliest of society. For example, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which some of us learned since childhood. This is a classic illustration, and it's still part of our language today. While there are good charitable efforts outside of the name of Jesus, of course, these authors argue that Christians pushed it forward, and made it what it is today. Give examples such as Mother Teresa's Salvation Army, religious hospitals, all the hospitals, Wesley, St. Francis, right? Not owned by churches today, but started by them. Church-supported soup kitchens, thrift shops, and so on and so forth. That Jesus made an incredible impact, and I would argue Jesus, of course, the foundation of it all, but then when the apostles came to the choice of whether they were to continue this idea of service, and even though they weren't going to be the ones necessarily that were going to do it, it was still done. There's a quote, a guy named D'Souza, if I'm pronouncing his name right, 
This is our culture's powerful emphasis on compassion, on helping the needy, on alleviating distress even in distant places. If there is a huge famine or reports of genocide in Africa, most people in other cultures are unconcerned. As the Chinese Proverbs has it, the tears of strangers are only water. But here in the West, we often rush to help. Part of the reason why we do this is because of our Christian assumptions. The ancient Greeks and Romans didn't believe this. They held a view quite commonly held in other cultures today. Yes, that's a problem, but it's their problem. However paradoxical it seems, people who believe most strongly in the next world did the most to improve the situation of people living in this one. We have choices, decisions in our life. And every big event, whether it's slavery, whether it's gentlemen, I told you about what series of choices. You know, sometimes when I think about people, I talk to them, they're trying to get their life back on track. I'll say, if you could just string a bunch of good decisions together in a row, change your life. We all make bad ones. We could just string some together in a row. And the apostles made this wonderful decision, I think, to why they focused on the word, charity continued. And this morning, as we turn to communion, I just want to remind us it's the most important decision that we ever make, the one that is the right decision in a string of good decisions that will turn your life around is the decision to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Decide to come to follow him. You know, we can guilt each other into charity work all day long, and it's good to do charity work, of course. The apostles did it. Christianity has a great history of doing it. But the real starting place isn't some guilt trip about how you should do charity work. The starting place is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the outflow of that, then we see things like decisions that the apostles made. Let's pray as the men come forward for, the offer, uh, for communion. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning. We just thank you so much for sending your son Jesus Christ to die for us. Giving us the, the opportunity to make the decision of a lifetime the decision to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The decision that can be the first decision, a series of decisions that completely change our life. Lord, for those of us who are Christians, I just pray that we would continue to put those series of decisions together. It's so easy to push off the path. I just pray as we take this cup and we take this bread, Lord, that we would think about ourselves and say, is there something in my life that I need to get straight? I just pray you'd move in our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name.